Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop. Waldie and Bendy's Adventures in Art. And this isn't any old episode. This is our Easter special. So get those eggs out of the basket and crack them open. I'm Valdemar Ilustrak, art critic of the Sunday Times. Though my friends, especially when they're in a hurry, they just know me as Waldy. And I'm joined, as always on this podcast, by a man who's been called the Scarlet Pimpernel of art history. They seek him here. They seek him there. That damned elusive Pimpernel. They seek him everywhere. Which is pretty silly of them, because all they have to do is listen to this podcast, and they'd know exactly where Bendor Bendy Grosvenor is hiding. Because he's right here, aren't you, Bendy? Hi, Amaldi. Hello. Nice to see you, and happy Easter. Um, I should explain to listeners, we are recording this on April Fool's Day, so that lovely, generous introduction is, of course, absolute fooey. Nobody calls me the Scarlet Pimpernel of art history. Alas, it would be fun <laughs> if they did. How dare you say that? Would I lie about something like that, Bendy? <laughs> Do you know what a Pimpernel is, by the way? Um, I, no, I just know Scarlet Pimpernel from the, from the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah, Baroness Orchie books. So you don't know what a Pimpernel is, a Pimpernel. Uh, is it something to do with pimps? No, 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 no. no. But it's a type of flower. Oh, right. It's a flower um, uh, in the, I think it's in the primrose family. I think they're often blue, but um, the red ones are the ones we're talking about here. So, um, I mean, I, I always think of you as a bit of a flower. That's what you are in my life. You're a kind of blossom. You're a, a, you're so, you're a sort of you're fecundity. <laughs> you know, that's what you are. Um, Bendy, we've got some big Easter treats on the podcast today. In a moment, we're going to be talking to the most famous artist in the world, David Hockney. He's on the podcast. Uh, and then later on Bendor Grosvenor's farm, well, we were going to be doing horses, right? Horses in art. Uh, but that's because we forgot it was Easter. Not anymore. The horses have been put on hold and we're doing eggs instead. Eggs in art. Now there's a topic. And of course, all the pictures we talk about, all the art, all the gugors, they're all illustrated on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. So forget the Easter bunny. If you want treats, go to zczfilms.com and examine the podcast pages. But first, as I promised, it's time to meet the most famous artist in the world. Bendy, I presume you're a David Hockney fan? I am. I'm also quite jealous of your contact book, Wally. I don't know how you managed to pull this one off. Well, I was helped out by his dealer, who's a wonderful chap called David Judah, runs the David Judah Gallery. And all I said to them was, look, it's Easter. We need something really, really, really special. And, you know, there's nothing more special than David Hockney, is there? Um, so, yeah, I got to talk to him in his house in France. Uh, and we talked about what, is, what he's been doing. And do you know what, Bendy? It couldn't be more pertinent because what he's been doing is basically spring. He's got a book out called Spring Cannot Be Cancelled. There's a big show all about spring as well. And that's coming up at the Royal Academy. And as I'm sure you know, Bendy, he's a bit of a traveller, right, David Hockney? Uh, he's lived in L.A. He's lived in Paris. A while ago, he moved back to England and lived in Bridlington in Yorkshire. But right now, he's living in France, in Normandy. And that's where his trusty assistant, JP, helped me to organise a chat with him. The Interview Great to see you, David. So you are now living in France, in your house in France. Is that right? 
Yeah. We're living in a seven dwarfs house in the middle of a four acre field full of fruit trees. Yeah. And this is in, in Normandy, right? Which is, yeah. it's, it's Monet country basically, isn't it? Normandy, that bit of it? Yes. Uh, it's about 10 miles from Cabourg and about 20 miles from Caen. So can you just describe your house to us a bit then? I, I, that part of Normandy, as I remember it, it's got a lot of those stripy houses with the wooden... Well, wooden yes, it is. It's like a seven dwarfs house. I mean, I noticed in the 19th century and early 20th century, paintings of Normandy didn't paint these houses because I think they thought they were too old-fashioned and looked like fairy tale houses, Hansel and Gretel. And I think that's what put them off. But there's lots of them around here, a hell of a lot, and I don't see how they could have avoided them, really. So what's taken you to France, David? I mean, you've been to Los Angeles, you've lived in, obviously, London, Yorkshire. I mean, we, we came here in 2018, and we came to Normandy to look at the biotapestry, actually. And uh, when we were driving around, I then suggested to JP that it was a good idea to do the arrival of spring here because there's much more blossom. There's not just the hawthorn blossom and black blossom, there's uh, apple blossom, cherry blossom, plum blossom, apricot blossom, lots of things. And I said, well, maybe we should just rent a house. And JP thought, well, renting a house, you might not be able to smoke or something. And uh, anyway, he just phoned a real estate person. And uh, then he said, well, on the way back to Paris, we can just call in and see this place. Well, we did. And we fell in love with it straight away because it was just this one house in the middle of a field. And around it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, there's just uh, beyond the fields, it's just other fields. All you can see is trees on the horizon. The only buildings we see are our buildings. And... Um, we bought it, I got going and I did really a drawing and a half each day uh, about and uh, I loved it having no visitors, loved it. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, fantastic for me. It is now still, I've started on the next spring and they're a bit different as well. It's just beginning here, and it's fantastic. And you just look. I mean, I think it is a mad world, but if you look at it, it's very beautiful. If you look at it. 
and uh, most people don't look at it that intensely, do they? And uh, but I do here especially, and uh, it's fantastic for me now. I mean, I'm 83. I don't really want to travel that much anymore. I'm okay here, but I'd done 220 pictures for 2020, which I thought was rather good. I mean, uh, I realized I could do 220, and it would go with 2020. Yeah. You seem to have got more and more prolific as you've got older. You, you're definitely doing more and more. Well, because there's no visitors. That's the amazing thing. I mean, even in LA, I get too many visitors, really. Mm. Five o'clock people come and things. And uh, uh, five o'clock in the summer, I can start something else. I mean, it's light here till 10 or 11. Yeah. Was this decision to do spring, was that a, that's a very conscious thing? You wanted to paint the spring? Well, yes. I mean, I'd done the spring in 2011 in Yorkshire for that big show I did. And uh, I think it's a great subject. I mean... It is a wonderful subject, and lots of people don't notice it. I mean, Celia told me in, during the lockdown, she stayed in Shropshire in a little cottage, and it was the first spring she'd seen from beginning to end for three months. Uh, and it does take three months from the moment the first things come up to the grass losing its spring green and then it goes a darker green. Well, that's about June 12th or something. And that's the start of the summer. Does the spring have a symbolic value for you as well then? So it's spring, obviously, we all know that it's this period of renewal, rebirth. There's so much art in the past, particularly, that has that kind of meaning. Oh, yes. I mean, I'd lived in a place where they didn't have much spring, L.A. I mean, you don't have the difference from the winter to the spring arriving. And uh, the first one I'd seen in 20 years was when I was walking up through Holland Park to go to Lucian Freud's to sit for my portrait. I lived at the bottom, he lived at the top. And I'd walk through every morning at eight o'clock and I noticed the spring happening. And I thought, oh, this is really exciting. I haven't seen one for 20 years. And uh, it got me going, and then I went up to, uh, we went to Bridlington. JP reminded me, we went up for about five weeks, and we stayed nine years. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So you've got behind you what look like some beautiful still lives of, of flowers in vases, and they, they remind me really of, of Van Gogh and that period of his life when he came to Arles, because that's what he was doing. He was painting the spring, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, these flowers are actually are going in one newspaper on May 20th, Divite that German newspaper uh, wants artists to put pictures in the newspaper, which I think is a very good idea because that's real news, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <told> yes. <laughs> and uh, these are going to be in it. And uh, I was amused because we did some mock-ups of these and uh, even against the adverts, they made the adverts look old-fashioned because the ads were colour photographs and the colour in photographs isn't that good and mine is a lot better. <laughs> I think newspapers today should actually have more artists in them actually that's what they need for print for if it's printed everything now is on this uh, screen isn't it well i mean if i i mean i i draw on this screen so on the screen they look quite real i think but lots of things don't and they need more reality in the newspaper really and they could do that with printing pictures, <laughs> really good pictures with colour or something. You're an alternative to fake news then, aren't you? You're reality, real news. Yes, real news. It's the real news, yeah. Well, that's what I kept telling people when I sent them out. I said, this is the real news, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to press further on this idea of um, your relationship to French art um, because obviously things like painting spring, um, painting the farms around you, the trees in blossom, I mean that immediately um, connects you, doesn't it, to sort of great impression. Well, I'm going to show the French how to paint Normandy. <laughs> I'm doing that because France was the only country that believed painting was dead, didn't they? They did. They believed those intellectuals. They didn't in England. They didn't in Germany. They didn't in Italy. They didn't in America. Uh, but uh, I think it was a really big error, that, because it meant there was only photography for depiction, and I think that's terrible to only have photography. Uh, I mean, photography is okay, but it's not that good, and the color is not that good. I'm going to show you that in divide. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, I can be a little bit subversive here in my way. I just go on doing it, yeah. 
Well, painting has, even on the most fashionable levels, as it were, has come back, really. You've got a lot of black artists who are painting, um, yeah. storytelling. And my feeling is that when, when times get real, art gets real. You know, when it comes down to it, that's what it's about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, abstraction couldn't go on forever if you thought about it. I thought about it. I thought, well... How can you tell some people not to draw? They didn't need to draw now. I thought, tell that to a little kid who's drawing. They want to draw because everybody wants to draw when they're three years old, don't they? Everybody. It must be deep within us, really. And I think that's what's happening, that's what's coming back, that's why it's coming back. And there'll be marvellous artists in the future, I think. Yes, there will. There'll be some good ones, yeah. Definitely. I have to ask you, David, uh, there's um, a thing going on at the moment about digital art. Have you heard of these things called NFTs, nifties? I think it's ICS. ICS. International Crooks and Swindlers. <laughs> yes. Good, I'm glad we're, we're as one on that one. So you know all about these things. It's like a... I don't know. I mean, uh, I read about them, but uh, I'm not really that interested. I mean, it's <laughs> it does sound like ICS to me. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, what is it they're owning? Mm. I don't really know. I don't, I don't really... I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for anything. I mean, uh, I'm just working away on my iPad. And uh, we print them out because you have to print them out. If you do it, I mean, you, things can get lost in the computer, can't they? Mm. And they will be in the future lost in the computer, I'm sure. Uh, even when the cloud gets going, I mean, there's going to be so much on it. How will you find it? How will you find it? And you'll have to need words to find it, won't you? Yeah. I don't know, but uh, NFTs are they called? Yeah, NFTs yeah. or nifties, 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 yeah. nifties. Yeah, I mean the people are making a lot of money, a lot of money out of them. I mean, you know, you are. I think you are the second most expensive living artist in the world at the moment, aren't you? One of your pictures, the second, third, fourth. I don't get <laughs> nine million dollars. You are well. Hot on your heels now is this guy Beeples, who's sold something for 70 million. Digital NFT. Yeah, but he's sold everything he's done, hasn't he? No. Isn't that everything he's done? Yes. <laughs> you do know about it, you see. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I saw the pictures, but I mean, it just looked like uh, silly little things. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't make out what he was, actually. Could you? No, I don't like them at all. They're sort of digital cartoons, but of a particularly low-brow nature. Oh, he's welcome to the money, then. 
So I won't keep you long because I know you're going to be busy dying to get back in the studio. But I mean, does this, have you now moved to France? Is that it? That David Hockney's going to be living in France from now on? Well, I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying it here, so I'm just going to stay. Why not? I mean, L.A. is okay, but they've still got a bit of COVID and stuff. I mean, it's changing. Uh, New York City, I don't really like because of the smoking. Uh, You can't smoke there. There's no place to sit down. I noticed that now, today, because uh, when I walk, I mean, I've, I've walked a quarter of a mile, I need to sit down. And New York hasn't got any places to sit down in the street. London does, Paris does. Most European cities have seats in the street and you can sit down and watch the world go by. In New York, you can't. This is the sun down the side of Central Park, and that's the only seats there are, it seems to me. Uh, I mean, if you want to sit down and smoke a cigarette, that's all I wanted to do, and I couldn't. In Paris, you can. In London, you can. In Normandy, you can. In Normandy, I really can, yes, I can. And it's fantastic here, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, I'm going out soon to draw again. I mean, it's, and the next six weeks are going to be fantastic, fantastic. And I'm going to do the spring of uh, 21, yes. Well, David, I know you don't like visitors, but um, after the spring's over and I'm passing by, I hope I can come and see you. I'd love to see the garden. Okay, okay. I will tell you, uh, I saw four programs you did on Islamic art that I thought was really, really good. I did. I thought they were really good. And what you said at the beginning was good but what you said at the end was really when you said they're always about gardens they're always about beautiful things in life uh (laughs) yeah yeah well thank you for watching yeah it was a great a great thing for me to do to see all those wonderful um islamic places and to feel what real islamic culture real islamic culture Completely different from what we feel, we think it is and what we imagine. Yeah, I mean, in the newspapers, you, you wouldn't know about it at all, would you, from newspapers? You wouldn't. No. Oh, Bendy, I'm blushing. Um, there you go. Look, you like my films. What do you think of that? Uh, it was marvellous. And why wouldn't he, Waldy? Um, obviously, we have to explain to listeners that for reasons of time, we had to edit out the part where he was even nicer about my film. Um, <laughs> so we, <laughs> didn't want you to feel overshadowed there, Waldy. But a lovely interview. Um, so many nice things to talk about there. Yes, it's uh, really interesting as well. I mean, spring is such a, 
old fashioned subject, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. You, you wouldn't have thought today artists would be making art about it, would you? Um, but it was wonderful to hear it. And you know the bit where he goes on about how lovely it is and, and noticing it for the first time for 20 years and what a passion that evoked in him. Um, you know, I know what he means. I mean, you're, listen, you're lucky. You, you, you live up there in Scotland in conditions where I imagine you get to see spring properly every year. But us city types, we don't. And it is actually a really big deal, isn't it? If you're living in the city, you just forget what a big deal it is. And that's, of course, I think what his art's about. Yeah, I suppose, you know, if we're going to be looking at uh, silver linings to the cloud of the pandemic, then it is the kind of focus that we've all been forced to go back to. And the idea that uh, we'll have to watch the passing of the seasons as we either stare in our gardens or stare out the windows, um, thinking what's going to happen next to us. And we've been lucky enough, thanks to you, mainly Wildy, throughout the course of this podcast series, to discuss how artists are reacting to, you know, the forced isolation of lockdown. And by and large, they're producing some amazing stuff. And it's so nice to hear uh, David Hockley. What a great national treasure he is. How lucky we are to have him working on these paintings in his garden in uh, Normandy. And there's some lovely photographs of him outside, just watching nature and painting what he sees. Um, mm. And this lovely new exhibition series is the result of it. That's right. Yeah. And the house sounds great. Um, you've been to Normandy. You've seen those stripy houses. That, that, yes. They look a bit like Tudor buildings, don't yeah. they? Like the middle yeah. of Chester or something. I mean, he seems to be in one of those. Um, and so I, I imagine they feel a little bit English, as it were, because Normandy feels more English than some bits of France, don't they? So mm -hmm. Although he's away, he's not totally away. Uh, but he's right about that sort of fairy tale aspect of it all. They, they do look a little bit like gingerbread houses. Um, the book that he's done uh, with Martin Gayford, you know, uh, uh, which is called uh, Spring, you know, it cannot be cancelled. And, and the exhibition, the bits I saw of it, the pictures that are going to be in it, you know, they're very much about this innocent atmosphere of spring, of fairy tales, of joy. And as I said to you earlier, you know, we live in a time in a world that is so sort of cynical and so um, full of bad news and dark news. It's just so pleasing, really, to have something as innocent and sweet as, as David Hockney's thoughts on spring in his book and in his art. <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry to be uh, cynical at this particular moment after you said that, Waldi, but, uh, you know, regular listeners will know that one of my pet themes as an art historian is slightly rebelling against this idea that modern art history or modern academic art history has, I should say, uh, that artists were often these uh, deep towering intellects concocting all sorts of compositions that we have to spend you know years and years working out what they mean and i say this with absolutely no disrespect to david hockney whatsoever who i admire greatly i love his work but isn't it refreshing to hear an artist saying i'm just going to sit down and watch the world go by and paint some lovely pictures of spring and mm -hmm. they are no less fantastic for that mm. what i love about him is his curiosity mm. basically he just gets involved in stuff you know, I think this is, this is also why he travels so much. You know, he goes somewhere and he just looks and looks and looks, you know, and finds stuff that interests him. So when he was in L.A., it was the colour of the swimming pools, the cacti. The, you know, you could feel that hot Californian air in the art that he produced in L.A. But he gets to Normandy and it's the dinky little houses and uh, these fantastic views of um, his orchard. He's got like a pear tree, apple trees um, and the blossom, you know, and he just does what, the really basic thing is that artists can do, which is they look at the world, they sense its excitement visually, and then they find a way to record it. I mean, it's simple mm -hmm. stuff, isn't it? But it can sometimes be so life enhancing. Mind you, he was a bit tough on the old NFTs, wasn't he? 
<laughs> yes, I obviously you and I agree with his um, diagnosis there. But a little part of me did wonder if he was just perhaps a little bit irked not to have jumped on that particular bandwagon, because of course he is a pioneer of digital art, isn't he, with his uh, with his iPad pictures. Well, he is, but it's a, it's a different kind of thing. So if you think about his iPad pictures, and I thought this was interesting too, because he, yes, he indeed, he was like one of the first artists who was using um, you know, digital stuff and using paint box stuff on, on, on digital screens and things. But he always insists on printing them out. This is yeah. the big difference. Yeah. So he doesn't leave it on the screen. He uses the screen as a vehicle for painting or making the pictures, but then he always prints them out. So when you go and see a Hockney show and you see his iPad drawings, they yeah. are actually big top printer, as it were, uh, reproductions of, of what was there. So, yeah. and he made a point of that, you know, that seems really important, that that's a difference between a digital yeah. thing that may exist somewhere out there in the ether yes. And one of these things he's got, which has been printed out and you can hold yeah. in your hand. No, I'm just being mischievous. And um, we uh, can only admire him even more for holding out against temptation to uh, flog all his stuff as NFTs online, um, yeah. which he could do endlessly and limitlessly if he wanted to. Uh, one other lovely observation I thought he made was about um, the lack of benches in New York City. <laughs> yes, that was good. It, it takes true, an artist, it? <laughs> Yeah, and it takes an artist like David Hockney to remind us that we've all just occasionally, in this world where we're all beetling along outside lockdown, of course, uh, staring at our screens, overwhelmed by information, and um, that we just need occasionally to sit down and slow down and look at the world around us. Yeah, but is, I mean, having walked through New York a few times, it's absolutely true. I mean, from Central Park all the way down, you know, to, to the Brooklyn Bridge, there are no benches. <laughs> there is nowhere to sit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a city made for big yellow taxis, isn't it? Um, anyway, very delightful to, to, to talk to him. And, and um, he's so happy down there in... Uh, in Normandy, you know, I don't think he's going to come back. I think that's it. I think England's lost him. He's, he's gone to France. He's going to stay there, you know. Uh, anyway, Bendy, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, um, we were going to be doing horses next, right, in our uh, visit to your farm. Um, but then Taya, the producer, she pointed out that it was Easter. Who knew? Nobody knew. And, of course, Easter doesn't mean horses. It means eggs. Loads and loads of eggs. And where's the best place to get eggs? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? Bendel Grainer had a farm, E-I-E-I-O farm. <laughs> so yes, Bendy, we've got rid of the horses and <laughs> we've gone looking for eggs. Now, I'm sure you're in your farm in Scotland, you've got hundreds of chickens lying around laying beautiful warm eggs. In my childhood, my stepfather used to have chickens in the garden and they'd lay these wonderful warm eggs. You'd put your hand in under the chicken. This beautiful little warm egg would come out and then you'd eat it. Oh, it was also lovely. Um, and of course, absolutely pertinent for Easter. So um, you as a farmer, I mean, there must be very little about eggs that you don't know, right? Well, I'm very good at eating them. I love them. We don't actually have chickens here, but our, our neighbours do. And we often uh, go and get some. And uh, what a, a lovely egg is is a feast, isn't it? Just one lovely egg can be a feast in itself. And it's so interesting that they're such a big part of Easter, isn't it? I mean, we will talk about this as we're going along, but I mean, eggs are so primarily associated with Easter for a variety of reasons. It's all to do with this idea of spring, rebirth, isn't it? I mean, so if you're a Catholic, that's all to do with the whole idea of the resurrection. You know, Jesus was dead for, for three days and then on the third day he rose again. And that the egg is traditionally the symbol of that. So it's all good news. It's all positive and pointing towards, towards rebirth and spring. So um, what we've done is we've um, very, very democratically come up with a, a list of, of five wonderful moments by the egg in art. 
I want to say democratically, I mean democratically, uh, I chose the shortlist. Um, and they are, they're, they're, they're trying to be slightly different ways in which the egg pops up in art. So we get a full sense of the, the width of the egg's impact on art. And um, they go all around the houses, they go through the ages. And I must say, I was absolutely surprised by how much of it there is. I mean, there are an awful lot of eggs in art. Um, and that's both incredibly exciting and very rewarding, but also really surprising, I must say. We're going to start, if we can, Bendy, with a couple of uh, very famous eggs. And they're, um, they're the eggs that appear in uh, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, which has an interesting history, which I'm sure you're going to tell us about. And it is actually called Leda and the Swan. So tell us about this one. Ah, well, the subject of Leda and the Swan is one of those uh, classical Greek myths where you you wonder what on earth they were doing, uh, perhaps, I don't know, chewing on too much deadly nightshade, where the, the god Zeus impersonates a swan uh, and comes down um, and rapes Leda to give birth to some sort of strange creatures that come out of shells. And Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted this picture, uh, but the painting itself is lost, and the composition is known only through uh, some copies and a lovely drawing by Leonardo himself, which is in the collection at Chatsworth House. We see a nude lady. She's very graceful. The swan is uh, beside her. They look actually quite content. You would have no idea what um, terrible violence has just gone on. And uh, beneath her to the left are two eggs and two little cherubs have emerged from them. So um, the sad thing about this picture is that we don't, it, it was lost. It was last recorded in the, in the French royal collection in the early 17th century, but apparently it was in terrible condition and has disappeared. Mm. And there's two sad things. One is indeed the, the loss of the picture. We don't know where the original is. The other was your terrible description of it. Honestly, Bendy, that's so um, uh, missing, missing the point, if, if I may say so, because those two little cherubs, as you put them in the eggs, I mean, they, they have incredibly important figures. <laughs> I mean, the, look. Can the you story, can you tell I never studied art history? <laughs> the, the story of Leda and the Swan is a lot more complicated than you've just made it out to be. Okay, so Leda was the. Yes, uh, we got a lot of egg pictures to get through, well. Yeah, she was the, a Spartan queen, right? Married to the king of the Spartans called Tyndareus. But yes, Zeus, the randy king of the gods, fancied her, so he came down disguised as a swan. And there's all sorts of things that could be said about swans with their long necks. Um, and their probing beaks, which we're not going to say on this podcast because this is a family podcast. But Zeus comes down, and indeed he makes her pregnant. But the complication is that on the same night as this rape happened, she also shared a bed with her husband, King Tendereus. And it is the mixing up of the two dollops of sperm that make this such an interesting situation because she then gives birth to two eggs because Zeus is a swan and inside the two eggs are two sets of babies and the two sets of babies because of a, of a thing called heteropaternal superfecundity I looked that up heteropaternal superfecundity or fecundation are mixed up between Zeus and her husband, Tyndareus. It means, in other words, one of the children is divine because it's Zeus's son, but the other child is mortal because it's Tyndareus's son. So in each egg, you've got a divine and a mortal, a divine and a mortal, and they are in this kind of order. In one of the eggs, you've got Helen, Helen of Troy, you know, the whole thing about, about, the, about Troy and, um, uh, and Agamemnon and, and the Greek wars with Troy. That's Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world. She's one of those babies in an egg. Uh, and the other is, is Pollux, 
whose brother, Castor, is in the other egg. And Castor and Pollux, if you remember, they're the twins, Gemini. They became the constellation that's up in the sky, Gemini. Um, and then the fourth baby of your little, little cherubs is Clytemnestra. Now, if you remember the Oresteia by Isca, I know I'm getting lost here with all these Greek names, but I'm trying my best here, Bendy. But the Oresteia, you know, the great Aeschylus play. Okay, yeah. Clytemnestra appears big time in that because she murders Agamemnon, right? So what I'm saying in a, in a nutshell, these four babies that you see in those two eggs have big, big mythological histories. And, and you know, this is a massive slab of Homer that's being depicted in this one image because of what's being born in those eggs. Okay. Well, there you go. That's why I always switched off in Latin, because uh, this, this sort of deluge of funny sounding names just completely scrambles my brain and I lose track of who, who everybody is. Um, actually, when you put this picture on your list and I started researching it, I got very sidetracked in the actual picture itself. I mentioned at the beginning that the original is supposed to be lost and that when it was last recorded, it was uh, said to be quite damaged. Now, when we, our very first podcast, I think, when we discussed Leonardo da Vinci, we did highlight what a terrible painter he was in terms of his craft. So many of his pictures, uh, Last Supper is the most famous example, have not lasted well. And when this picture was last seen in the French Royal Collection in the early 17th century, it was said to be, and I quote, in a bad state because it is done on three long panels which have split apart and broken off a certain amount of paint. Well, I got very excited because I looked at a number of the copies which uh, tell us what this composition used to look like. There's one in the Uffizi, which is definitely not by Leonardo, but it gives us a good account of the painting. There is the drawing, as I said, at Chatsworth. And then, I don't know if you had a chance to see this, there is a, a picture in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which I've been to, but I've never seen the picture. Mm. It says it's not on display. I have to say it looks fascinating, really, really intriguing, because the figure itself has really I think quite good bits. I can see that perhaps coming out of Leonardo's workshop. I mean, I know I get very excited by these things and I can jump to terrible conclusions on the basis of photographs. But the interesting thing about this painting is it's very obviously painted by two different people. The figure really? is painted by one person. And it, it, you can tell it's been very overpainted. It's in terrible condition underneath. And then someone else has come along and put in a background. And I, I just wonder, I wonder, Waldy, if that might have been done to cover up some very old damage. So Ooh. if you're in Philadelphia, if you're a curator in Philadelphia listening to this podcast, well, have mm. a look. Have a look. You heard it here first. You reckon this might be the, the Lost Leonardo or something like that? Or... I don't know. I think this could be. A, I don't know. I, it might be. It could be. A I've really... seen one. I've seen one of these copies, right, which is the one in the Galleria Borghese. They've got one by that uh, unfortunately named painter Sodoma. Sodoma did a, a, a version <laughs> of this as well. Um, and it's it's obviously an incredibly persistent image because there are so many copies, aren't there? Yeah. And they're just I, not just the drawings by Leonardo, yeah. but there are these copies scattered around all over the place. So it must have been a very famous painting. Philadelphia curators, listen to Bendy, have a good look at your pictures. That's one part of the story. But the other part of the story is that there are, you know, later in the Swan became very popular in the Renaissance as a subject because it was a way of painting erotic pictures while pretending to be painting mythology, right? Um, yeah. And there's a great Michelangelo as well oh. of Leda and the Swan, and that's even more um, tempestuous, much more tempestuous than this. That too has been lost, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, so they, that's only known through copies, one of which is by Rubens. So this one as well is known only by copies. And um, I did read somewhere that there's a suspicion that the, the Leda's and the Swans were destroyed 
um, deliberately, usually by sort of wives and mothers of uh, the people that owned them, um, because they just found them too salacious. No, so that's no. why you know, the great Michelangelo later, um, the great Leonardo later, you know, why they're there no more. No, I suspect that uh, what happens with most of these lost originals is that uh, they are very often survive. They've just been overpainted, they're damaged, and they're hiding out there somewhere, and we just need to find them. Oh, Joe, that's exciting. Do you know what? That's some really exciting. Maybe we need to go to Philadelphia and check it out. Well, look, look while we're waiting for our flights to Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, let's just move on to uh, another type of egg, and that's um, in this painting by Salvador Dali, the very famous painting called Metamorphosis of Narcissus, which hangs in the Tate Gallery. Very strange picture, wonderful picture. I, I go both ways on Dali. I, I can have too much of him very, very, very quickly. But this is, I think up there with, with one of the two or three paintings that deserve to be called his masterpiece. And it shows a Narcissus who is made of stone, really. And the, you know, the myth of Narcissus is that he was such a handsome, beautiful youth that when he looked in the water, he fell in love with himself, didn't he? Mm. And so all these other people who, who fell in love with him because he was so beautiful, they were all rejected. Uh, and in the end, he just fell in love with himself and, and, and petered out, as it were. So this is um, a kind of image of, of self-love. Uh, but Dali's made it into this something very strange, very surreal. So Narcissus himself is staring into the water in one of the lumps of rock there. So it's a lump of rock that looks a bit like Narcissus. And next to him, another lump of rock turns out to be a hand. And the hand is holding an egg. And coming out of the egg is a flower. And the flower is, of course, a Narcissus, uh, because that's what holds it all together, this myth. The idea that um, uh, out of, as it were, the dying Narcissus, the, uh, the flower of Narcissus, the new Narcissus, was born in spring. So it's meant to be optimistic as a message, you know, Narcissus and spring, uh, but it isn't really, is it? I mean, it's a very pessimistic picture, Ben. Yeah, I, I don't know. Dar Darley leaves me slightly scratching my head, I'm afraid. He was very keen on eggs, Darley, wasn't he? He had sort of these egg chairs around his house. Mm, and um, a big egg sculpture as well outside his museum. Yeah. Hmm. Now, Strangeness I... of the egg, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's part of the makeup of it, isn't it? I Maybe. Well, I, I apologise to anyone who's listening to this, tucking into their Sunday morning chipolatas. Uh, but whenever I see this picture, it reminds me of a terrible story that Brian Sewell tells about his visit to Salvador Dali. You must have heard this. Uh, because in this picture, we see a naked figure crouching beneath a rock, um, looking at the ground. And Sewell tells a story that Dali asked him to go and crouch beneath a, a similar rocky-like place, take all his clothes off and start masturbating in front of him while he took photographs. And, and there's lots of naked uh, jangling about in this painting going on. And whenever I see it, I just think of Brian Sewell's story. I hear his voice in my head talking about masturbating for Salvador Dali. It's terrible. I can't stop thinking it when I see this picture. Bedor, there's an old saying in art, never believe anything Brian Sewell ever said about anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was uh, well known for his tall stories. I think you can go to bed relaxed and sleepy and not worry about that because I bet you anything you want that that ain't true. But of course, a Dali was fixated on sex in interesting and strange ways. Um, he is a creepy artist a lot of the time. And there are some very weird things going on in this picture. Do you know what? Let's just move on. You know, I think there's enough truth in all that for us to wish to avoid it. And I'm not really that keen on, on masturbatory egg narcissize. So, yeah, let's move on to something a little bit more wholesome in our search for the best egg in art. But this is also complicated and interesting, but I think it's not quite as bad as, as Dali. Uh, we're going to move on to um, a 16th century image 
of a thing called the egg dance. Well-known event, the egg dance, associated with Easter. Um, it's a thing you did or used to do in villages um, up and down Europe back in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. You did the egg dance. And there's lots of good paintings of it, but I've chosen one by Peter Ertzen, who's an artist I admire massively because I think he's always underrated. You know, everybody goes on about Bruegel. They don't go on enough about Ertzen. But, uh, Bendy, what do you make of this picture? The Egg Dance by Peter Ertzen. Oh, I'm a big Ertzen fan as well, of course. He was the father of a still-life painting. So um, in this picture, we don't see so many examples of what, what he was absolutely famous for, with all those lovely depictions of fish and vegetables and cabbages and cheeses. And he was the first person to really foreground those in his paintings, um, as opposed to a religious narrative. Uh, but here... Uh, we see a little person um, doing an egg dance. There's an egg on the floor and around it is a chalk circle. And the idea is you had to do your dance uh, rolling the egg around within that circle and then put a little wooden pot on it with your feet. And you had to do all this, um, usually while drunk, without breaking the egg. And also in the picture, we see various carousing individuals. Um, and Ertzen, um, they're so wonderful and colourful and there's so much to feast your eyes on. And this picture, um, it's debated as to whether it has, um, you're going to tell me about the religious meaning because you're good at that. Um, <laughs> but it's much debated as to whether the three figures on the right are in fact Mary, Joseph and Jesus. Do you have mm. a view on that? I think in this instance they're not, although they often are, as it were, in Ertzen, as you said. I mean, he, he, he invented the genre picture in which you'd have something very folkish and normal, as it were, happening in the foreground. In the back, there would be some biblical event that ties in with what's happening in the foreground. I don't actually think that is happening here, because there's so much happening in the foreground that it's quite enough to fill the story, as it were. Um, yeah, Ertzen, great painter. Do, do you know what his nickname was? Uh, I don't know. They called him Tall Pete because mm -hmm. apparently he was unusually tall. And that may be one reason why you like him, because you're unusually tall too. <laughs> tall Pete. So, egg dance. Have you ever done the egg dance, Bendy? You know, I haven't. I was surprised, I was surprised reading up about this picture uh, as to how widespread the practice of doing an egg dance was and how it's completely disappeared from Alexa. It's not like bobbing for apples, which we still do. Have you Have you done yeah. an egg dance? No, I haven't, but I have, I have been aware of it in the past because I used to do them in Poland and my mum mentioned it a couple of times. I had a very Polish sort of upbringing. So every Easter we would, you know, paint the eggs. You know, you, you, you paint eggs, yeah. coloured eggs. Is that yeah. a thing in England? It used to be a yes, very big indeed. thing in Poland. Yeah. So you put the eggs in, in onion skins that turns them brown or beetroot juice to turn mm -hmm. them red and all that and then you'd go along to the the, the the church on good friday and take your eggs in and the priest would bless them and there's all that going on um, and these easter festivities used to involve egg dancing apparently and it's all tied in with this idea of spring rejuvenation and fertility so th there are various types of egg dance so this is one of them, which is where you get a bloke, one bloke running around on a floor that's littered with things. You're not allowed to step on anything, let alone the eggs. But the big thing is not to break the egg, obviously. And then you sort of tip it into this bowl and then that's it. You've, you've won. But what is it you've won? Well, in most cases, these egg dances were about finding a bride or finding a husband. Mm -hmm. So uh, another type of egg dance, there'd be loads and loads of eggs on the ground and a whole bunch of potential married couples or people who fancied each other in the village would come in and dance around the eggs and the ones who didn't step on on any eggs or break any they were allowed to go and get married so it was a sort of fertility rite um it proved that you're sort of nimble and a good dancer and those aspects of it i think are in this picture because i don't think it's so much religious as moralistic i do suspect that there's something going on here that that is commenting in a very etsy fashion on on the dangers of, of lust 
and all that kind of stuff. So there's right in the foreground, there is this chap who is obviously going to be the next egg dancer in the picture, isn't he? So there's one guy's already doing it. This, this guy in the foreground is about to do it. And he's leaning back. He's got a bottle or something in his hand, got his legs stretched out and his arm just droops accidentally on the shoulder of a beautiful peasant girl. And she's the one that's holding the basket full of eggs, right? Yeah. So that's got to be the big, the big payoff. And she's pointing at the chap who's doing the egg dance in the middle of the picture. So there's, you know, there's something going on here, some kind of moralizing tale. But I think what's great is that is it's eggs, eggs, fertility, Easter again. You can't get away from it. Every time eggs pop up in art, it's always to do with this whole idea of, of rebirth or, or, or finding a partner or, or, or procreation. Yeah. I and mean, I just find that incredibly cheery, really, I suppose is the word for it. Uh, it's a great picture, though, isn't it? It's in the Rijksmuseum in, in Amsterdam. Great picture. Yeah, I mean, I presume all this goes back to ancient pagan times and is one of those uh, festivals that the Christian faith co-opted in Europe. But I have to say, Waldi, um, the more you describe it, egg dancing sounds quite tricky. Um, now, I'm, I'm a terrible dancer. I haven't got the coordination for it. Um, I, I hesitate to say this, Waldi. I'm, I'm not sure you're a great dancer. I think if this practice had carried on of choosing brides by egg dancing, you and I would be very much the bachelors of our age, wouldn't we? I think we'd be very successful. After all, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, Wendy. Oh, but what you wouldn't want to break is what we've got coming up next in this list. Because uh, you break one of these, you are breaking zillions of pounds in one big hefty footstep. Uh, because we're going to move on to, I suppose, the most famous decorative eggs of all, the Fabergé eggs. Now, there were actually loads of them made um, by the great jewellers of the Fabergé company, they were made between 1885 and 1917 for the Tsars of Russia. Uh, and they were, again, Easter presents. So the Fabergé eggs were things that the Tsars of Russia gave to their wives and their mothers as Easter presents. And they had that thing, which we still have today, where um, you get an egg and you open it up and inside is some delightful surprise. So today it would be you know, a packet of Mars bars or um, a bag of Smarties or something. But in Fabergé's time, it would be a beautiful automated peacock that its tail would open out and its mouth would open and it would make beautiful noises or full length sort of royal carriage made of gold and horses in the front of it or giant elephants would come out or just funny things would happen. So there would always be this delightful surprise in the middle of the Fabergé egg. Um, and they were famous in their own time. But then in the 1920s, Stalin sold a whole lot of them, trying to get some money into Russia. He sold a whole lot of the imperial Fabergé eggs, and mostly bought by Americans. Arnold Hammer, in fact, bought, bought most of them. And so their fame spread. And now I think they are unquestionably, you know, basically the most expensive eggs you can get. You know, if you get yourself a Fabergé egg, you are doing really well. They're beautiful, aren't they, Bendy? I mean, I know you don't really like... Um, frippery and gewgaws and, and all that but I mean, come on these are great aren't they um they are lovely and the one you've selected we'll put on ncczfilms.com is the peacock egg from 1908 and uh always called a fabric egg but of course um they were made by people within his workshop and I, because i always like to credit artists and craftsmen what they've done um we should say that this particular one the peacock egg was made by henrik wigstrom and the automation was by a fellow called Semyon Dorofeyev. And it took him apparently three years to work out how to make this little automated peacock, which is tiny, tiny, tiny thing, do all the things that it does. And it's a, a real feat of engineering. Now, I'm, I'm not as um, excited by 
frippery and jewelry as you are, Weldy. And I have to say, I probably would have been amongst the um, the eighty percent of the Russian population who were Soviets at the time, sort of wondering what on earth the imperial family were doing, spending all their money on these ridiculous bejeweled trinkets. But, uh, but Ben, do you you must be related to the Russian royal family. I mean, you know, you you come, <laughs> you, your blood doesn't get bluer than yours. No. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, you're talking about your kinfolk here being butchered in the in the Winter Palace. No, I have about? no relation to the Russian Tsars at all. My my European side, I was very peasant stock, actually. So I would have been there on the barricades. Yeah, definitely. Well, they don't come more peasant than me. I mean, I think you can <laughs> tell from my from my excellent build that I was basically put on earth to pick potatoes out of the ground. And yet somehow I've ended up in this parallel universe of art history. Um, they're wonderful. Another reason I picked them out, apart from the fact that Fabergé eggs are wonderful, and I do love the peacock egg in particular, is there's a big show coming to the V&A Museum in London. Um, so uh, V&A, American listeners, we've got a few more of you now. I think there are 34, <laughs> 34 American listeners. There's um, a couple of new ones in Florida, uh, another one from New York, and, and I think there's somebody else has come from uh, Denver, Colorado. So, you know, uh, we're massing, amassing American listeners, but American listeners, the V&A stands for the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's a wonderful museum of the decorative arts to be found in London. And if you happen to be around in London uh, around Christmas this year, you will be able to go and see a magnificent Fabergé egg exhibition that's being mm. organized by the V&A. And it sounds absolutely exciting, Ben, really exciting. Yeah, imagine the insurance bill for that. My God. Um, but we're going to move on to, uh, I think we can fairly describe as a more serious egg than that. Uh, and it's the one that um, I've got a feeling you're going to like a lot, Bendy, because you're a, a, a spiritual sort of guy. And, and it's, uh, it's one painted by the great Velázquez, a brilliant Baroque Spanish painter, um, painted in around, uh, I suppose, 1617, 1618, something like that. Uh, it's from a picture that's near you up there in Scotland, in the National Gallery of Scotland, uh, and it's called Old Woman Frying Eggs, a plebeian title for what is an absolutely stunning picture, isn't it? Oh, yes, I know this painting well. It's absolutely beautiful and in lovely condition. Now, you mentioned the date, which means that Velasquez, when he painted this, would only have been around about 18 or 19. Can you believe that? So we have on the right, we have uh, one of Velasquez, young Velasquez's favourite early models, an old woman. She's got some eggs cooking in a lovely earthenware pot in front of her. And then uh, waiting, perhaps, to tuck into the eggs or to join her in eating them is, is a young boy who's holding a melon and a decanter, I think, of water or wine. Now, there's all sorts of discussions as about what this picture really means. But the most important thing for me to clarify here, Waldi, is your description of the old woman frying eggs. And actually, I think we can be fairly certain she's poaching them. Oh, really? Yeah, because look at the look at the eggs in the pot. There's actually some liquid in there. You know, when you put an egg in to poach and the little the yellow goes in nicely. And then if you don't stir it right, um, the white bit sort of kind of leaches out into the water. Uh, that's mm. going on here. As a regular uh, egg poacher, I can surely confirm that these are not frying eggs, but poaching eggs. Well, do you know? I don't know. Have you have you ever had gambas al ailio, the shrimps with olive oil and um, garlic? In, in Madrid, it's a speciality. Indeed, it's probably yes. my favourite food in the world, right? Mm. And the way they serve that is you get one of these earthenware bowls, like just like the one she's got, and they fill it with olive oil and they put the um, chilies and the onions and the garlic in. 
Yeah. And then the shrimps get hot and then you eat it by dipping the bread into the oil and eating the shrimp. Absolutely gorgeous. That looks to me like a process that's going on here as well. You've got exactly the same kind of bowl. And although there is a lot of liquid, it might all be olive oil, mightn't it? So I don't know. I mean, I've never heard of Spanish poached eggs. So they don't eat poached eggs, do they? Well, perhaps they did. Perhaps Velasco was very keen on a poached egg. <laughs> well, what's unarguable is it's a brilliantly painted egg, isn't it? Or oh, two eggs or three eggs, because he's holding one in a hand as well. Oh, this painting, you know, wow. It's famous for its depth of detail, the precision with which this, as you said, 18, 19 year old Velasquez has captured the textures of the things in it. And now they're not easy textures to have captured. I mean, there's some very subtle observation going on here. You know, you've got some different types of bowl, you've got a jug, you've got a brass mortar and pestle, um, you've got the bottle of wine that the little boy's holding, you know, the melon, the skin of the melon, all these different textures, all captured with, with riveting, with brilliant precision and accuracy. And the red onion bottom right there. Oh, and the onion, the onion, and the chilies, the chilies. All, I, you know, it's a cliche, but you, you could actually reach out and touch them, couldn't you, and feel their reality. Um, fabulous picture. They were called Bodegones, weren't they, these early Velasquez pictures? Do you know Bodegones? Yes. Um, and his teacher and his father-in-law at this point, Francisco, is it Pacheco? Have I pronounced Pacheco. that right? Pacheco, yeah, Pacheco, sorry. yeah. Um, he wrote a great treatise on the importance of these for young artists studying their craft. And he, he took back the tradition very deliberately of um, ancient artists, um, the people that you like, so Pliny the Elder used to talk about, of artists who were so good that they would uh, paint a picture of a still life and a bird would fly in and try and eat the grapes. And this, this Pacheco considered to be uh, absolutely essential for young artists to aspire to do in learning their craft. Mm. And that's why I think this picture, in, in all the brilliance that you've mentioned quite rightly there, I'm not sure that we, we should read too much more into it than that. Oh, I don't know about that. I think I think there is possibly one other level of meaning going on here. Okay. I mean, the bodegon is as a genre. It's 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 a kitchen picture, isn't it, or a tavern picture? Yeah. So bodegon is was was a a humble sub bit of subject matter in which the artist would paint a scene around the corner. You know, something very basic, something that hadn't appeared in art before. And this is of course the great, great invention of Velasquez. And, and you have had in art before scenes of common humanity as it were doing stuff i mean we had we had one on the podcast of well, many weeks ago now but do you remember that great painting by vincenzo campi of the ricotta eaters mm -hmm. and it was a yeah. bunch of people sitting around a, a big plate of ricotta eating it joyously but that had a comic air to it you know there was a sense of mocking the working classes of, of looking down at them making buffoons out of them but with velasquez you don't get any of that you know velasquez finds nobility in these humble textures and these humble things. And this picture, I think, has a, some kind of ambition to ennoble plainness and, and, and ordinary life and the basics. But I also think, you know, really don't think there is something deliberate going on about the contrast between the two figures. So you've got a young boy, very young, what, 12, 14, 15, you know, he's a teenager, with the melon, which is a kind of quite luxurious bit of fruit, and the bottle of wine, which is quite a you know, a drinky sort of thing to have. And this old woman, gnarled, nobbled, and these humble little textures around her with these humble little jugs and things. And she's just frying these basic sort of eggs. Isn't there a contrast between youth and age here? Isn't there some sort of implied meaning about the shortness of, of life, perhaps, and how quickly things can change? 
Uh, I suppose it's possible. We may never know. And yet I, I come back to Pacheco's writings about um, the importance of, of uh, imitation of nature and that uh, artists should aspire to this in its truest possible form. So, it, and, and these models, as I said at the beginning, were do appear in other early Velasquez. And it, it could be that he just wanted to explore the contrast of painting an old person's face and a young person's face. Um, mm. But here I am uh, always being the art historical party pooper. Well, you're also speaking the art historical truth a lot of the time, Bendy. And I'll tell you what, normally in these situations, we take a vote and see which is the best of these egg pictures, right? I don't think we need to do that in this instance, do we? I mean, can't we just sit in awe in front of this Velasquez for a minute and just all agree that yes. in terms of talent, uh, in terms of depth, profundity, in terms of just exquisiteness, I mean, these are eggs as you want them to be in art, aren't they? I mean, I love Fabergé, but... Uh, this Velasquez is something else. Um, he's the winner, isn't he? Uh, hands down, there can be no doubt this is uh, definitely a top of artist. The best egg painting in Western art. Although I do very much want to go and see this picture in Philadelphia. So we must put that on our um, post-lockdown to-do list, Weldy. Yeah, if there's anything left. I mean, it's, it's, the diary's getting very full. But I, I'm going to go to Philadelphia with you, rediscover the lost Leonardo. <laughs> I don't think it would change my mind, though. I still think this is the one. You know, for me, Velasquez is the king of the egg. Anyway, it's time to move on already. We've fried all these eggs and, and we've used up all this time and uh, we've still got things to do on this podcast because we've got the bit where you and I have to go and find something to hang on our walls during the lockdown. We've been slow to get here, but believe me, we're very keen to get here. On the Wall Bendy on the wall. Uh, look, it's been such a rich podcast. We've got so much in it. All that David Hockney, all those fantastic egg painters. Um, I'm hungering for a, a bit of simplicity, I guess, a bit of directness to go on your wall, but also perhaps on mine. Um, and I can see from what you've sent me that you're going to give me that. You're going to give me simplicity. <laughs> yes, it's not a great work of art, actually. <laughs> this week I've chosen a portrait, a Victorian portrait, of someone called Edward Henry Stanley. He was the 15th Earl of Derby. And this particular painting of him when he was a young man, looking quite handsome, I have to say, uh, in a lovely white stock there and a black bow tie, um, it's by an artist called Jane Hawkins and is actually a copy of another picture, an original by Sir Francis Grant. And the reason I've chosen this picture, Weldy, is because um, I did my PhD on this fellow, the Earl of Derby. He was Foreign Secretary under the Prime Ministership of Benjamin Disraeli, and he later served in the cabinet of another Liberal Prime Minister, William Gladstone. So uh, Derby was the only person to serve in the cabinets of both Disraeli and Gladstone, those two titans of Victorian politics. And he had a terrible feud with uh, Benjamin Disraeli over a moment where we nearly ended up going to war with Russia in the 1870s. And I wrote my, my PhD, as, I, as I've admitted a few times on this podcast, I never actually studied art history. I'm a historian by training. So I did my PhD on this fellow, on that moment in politics. And after his feud with Disraeli, he was slightly airbrushed out of history because he lost his argument with Benjamin Disraeli, who was one of uh, history's most colourful characters. And it wasn't until the 1970s, Waldi, when the Earl of Derby's diaries were discovered in a trunk in his house, a stately home called Knowsley Hall near Liverpool. They were discovered by a historian called John Vincent, Professor John Vincent. Um, and these, these extraordinary diaries, it turns out that the Earl of Derby was the sort of Samuel Pepys of his age, and he had this most amazing record. And his diaries transformed our view of Victorian politics. And many years later, 
I did my PhD on these diaries. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because uh, John Vincent, Professor John Vincent, um, the man who discovered these diaries, did so much to change our view of Victorian British politics and by discovering the diaries and then teaching me later in my life, uh, transformed my life by being a wonderful teacher. I've been so lucky in my life to have so many good history teachers and John Vincent was one of them. Well, anyway, uh, John Vincent died this week. Um, oh, and this oh. is my, my little tribute to him for having uh, had such an impact on me. And I want to have this picture of the Earl of Derby on my wall um, to remember John and to remember the Earl of Derby. Because when you, when you do a, a PhD thesis on someone, you, you really get to know them like a sort of friend, because, especially with a, a, a diarist like the Earl of Derby was. You, 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 know, you get to know the most intimate secrets and thoughts. Uh, because this was a diary that was never supposed to be published until John found it um, literally in the cellars of this stately home and he broke open the locks in this, these trunks and found these amazing diaries. Um, so I, I feel like I know him so well, the Earl of Derby, and I don't have a portrait of him. And this is my cunning plan to get hold of a portrait. And this, this particular portrait of the Earl of Derby um, actually hangs in Benjamin Disraeli's house, Hewenden Manor, which currently belongs to the National Trust. So I will be liberating this portrait from um, the Earl of Derby's arch nemesis and hanging it on my wall. Right. Well, um, obviously, if he helped in your education, Bendy, um, then your teacher friend was a wonderful man. And um, uh, no, no, no question, it's a lovely thing to do to remember him that way. Um, I can't say I'm overly enthused by this particular portrait i wish i were but i'm not particularly he looks like a fairly ordinary sort of victorian bloke <laughs> interestingly he's in an oval so i think unconsciously you've followed the egg theme here um, and <laughs> kept us on the direction of the egg and actually i remember seeing a cartoon of disraeli like where was it that i saw it i seen a cartoon of disraeli doing the egg dance there is a cartoon in one of those political <laughs> events that, you know, that, um, I'm serious, I'm not joking. There is a cartoon of one of those political events that disfigured the Victorian era where Disraeli had to be very clever and pull off something very tricky. Um, and in the cartoon, I think it was a punch cartoon, he is doing the egg dance because that's what it came to symbolise, this sort of impossible task of trying to do something by being incredibly nimble. So um, that's about all I've got to say on that subject. Uh, I look forward to reading your PhD thesis. Oh, I'll send it to you for um, insomniac moments. I'm going to look up that cartoon. I had not come across that. Um, well, well, you'll find it somewhere. And, and when you do, say, oh, good old Waldy. Um, he may know nothing about Benjamin Disraeli, but he knows his, he knows his eggs. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Well, that's lovely. That's a lovely moment. And your teacher up there in heaven, I'm sure, will, will appreciate that. I've gone for something funny enough also to do with the past and also to do with my past. Um, so it's a, it's a picture by an artist called Sonia Boyce. Now, Sonia Boyce is going to be Britain's representative at the Venice Biennale next year. Incredibly prestigious post. She's been chosen to represent us at the big British pavilion at the Biennale. I mean, it's it's probably the most prestigious gig you can have as an artist and when you're chosen to represent your nation at the Biennale. So, so well done, Sonia. Brilliant thing that you're doing. She doesn't do this anymore. This, this picture is from 1984, 1983. And it shows a little girl sitting on the lap of her mother. And uh, she's a black little girl. 
and got beautiful little hairstyle and she seems to be looking into the world with wide eyes lovely image of innocence and you don't see all of her mum you just see the the dress for a beautiful bright african dress um and half of her head so it's all about the little girl and that is of course sonia voice so it's a, it's a self-portrait by sonia done very very early in her career and these days she's known as a kind of installation artist so what she does is she arranges performances, she does installations, she does a lot of this tricky conceptual art, often to do with issues of um, identity, with, with, with black awareness. So very au courant in subject matter and in the way she treats it. But she started out in that way that David Hockney mentioned, you know, if you're a three-year-old kid, what do you want to do? You want to draw? This is exactly the atmosphere that Sonia Boyce's early work had. You just felt that she just drew like this and couldn't help it. But anyway, this particular picture, I put it in a show. I've only curated a couple of shows in my life. Um, but uh, it so happens that back in the 80s, I curated a show at the Nicola Jacobs Gallery, and I put this picture in. And I loved it then. I love it now. And what I really remember is that um, it cost a couple of hundred quid, right? And I was, you know, I didn't come from a rich family like you, Bender. I've never had money, you know, pouring out of every pocket that I've got, uh, unlike you. So I've had to try and make ends meet. And I never had enough money to buy what I wanted. So I wasn't able to buy this. I really, really wanted to buy this picture. I didn't have money and I couldn't. So I didn't get it then. And now that Sonia Boyce is representing Britain at the Venice Biennale, I'm hardly likely to get it now. So the only way around this is to use the on-the-wall magic carpet and to swipe it for a week from wherever it exists now. And I can hang it on the wall and look at it, think about lovely Sonia and her beautiful early work, compare it with what she's doing now. And even though I can't own it properly, I can at least have it for a week. So that's my Sonia Boyce story, and that is why I want this fantastic picture of Sonia as a little girl sitting on her mum's lap and looking at us with big beautiful eyes oh it's a lovely picture and what a shame for you that you missed out on it if you had come from my aristocratic Grosvenor side of the family you too would not have had a penny to buy it either because everybody assumes with a name like Grosvenor I must have had lots of Grosvenor money but not a sausage we're very much the poorer side of the family. But anyway, that is not important. This is a lovely picture. Um, what I would like to know is, does Sonia Boyce still paint? Or, or is she still painting perhaps privately herself? Because she's very good at it. She's, well, she's a brilliant artist. Big, bold marks, big, bold shapes and things. No, not really. She's been doing all this other stuff. And her work's still very good. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't dislike anything she does. Um, but that she has turned her back on on the way she started and what she used to do and I, I think it's a shame because she just created you know a dozen beautiful images with sort of pastels and paintings early on in her career and i've got her phone number still i'm going to phone her up and ask her to do some of these early pictures again um and see if i can if i can persuade her to part with one for me mm. because and apart from anything else they're, they're being incredibly fashionable at the moment it's what everybody else is doing beautiful image uh, by a really talented and wonderful artist wonderful person too sonia boyce well sonia if you're listening um Wildy these days is absolutely loaded with money i can look down the zoom and i can see his <laughs> flat it just goes on for acres it's enormous there's masterpieces hanging up every wall so make sure you charge him a fortune for this painting you're going to make for him um unfortunately we're not going to be around to see that happen because it's the end of the podcast Bendy. We've done our bit. We've done Easter. We've done David Hockney. You've saved the world a couple of times. We found out how rich you are. That's an awful lot to be going on in one podcast. So I think uh, I'm finished. That's enough from me and it's goodbye from me. And happy Easter and cheerio from me. 
Woldy and Bendy.